Let's do one more chapter. <clears throat> chapter 22. Now, here, probably the heading of your Bible just says various laws, because once again, it's hard to follow the thread of what's holding all these things together. But let's look at them. Verse 1, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And if he does not live near you, and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house, and you shall stay with, it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Notice once again the community responsibility. Whether, in fact, in Exodus it says, if you see a man who you hates donkey. Okay? When it uses the word brother here, it's not talking about family, it's talking about neighbors. And what he says is, if you see one that's broken out, it's now your problem. It's your responsibility to bring him back to his owner. And if you don't know who the owner is, that doesn't excuse you. You take it home and care for you, and you put up the posters. Lost donkey. Right? That's the idea here. Notice as it continues, <coughs> verse 3. You'll do the same with his donkey, or with his garment, or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses, and you find you may not ignore it. This is the exact opposite of finders keepers, right? If you found, you're responsible to find the owner. But ultimately what this is, is what Jesus says when he summarizes the law is love your neighbor as yourself. You should care about the property of your neighbor. You should seek to care for your neighbor by how you handle his property. Then notice this in verse 4. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help them to lift him up again. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like seeing a car broken down along the freeway. Right? The idea here is if you come across a neighbor in trouble, stop and help them. And once again, I, I want you to notice that there are things in Deuteronomy that are hard for us to understand, but the moral code that it presents and the virtue that it presents is oftentimes higher than our own way of living, let alone our own way of legislating as Americans. One of the things that we see here is not just that God cares about the neighbor, but he also cares about the animal. Think of this. When it says, you see a brother's donkey or ox fallen down by the way, why have they fallen down? Another passage in the Old Testament law makes it explicit. They've fallen down because they've been overloaded. Okay? And so the recognition here is actually involving care for the animal, care for the treatment of animals. Now, I'm going to save the, the punchline of that until we hit, uh, hit one more verse. But first we need to deal with verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. There's really no getting around that statement. Effectively, what it says is that gender means something and that that significance of difference needs to be maintained. And there are those who have tried to say, yeah, but once again, that's just the Old Testament law. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul deals specifically with male and female garments and his concern is with male and female, not with the clothing. Now, there's a couple of things that I think we need to do really quickly. First off, 
this isn't condemning the people, but the practice. Now, I know once the person commits the practice, those go hand in hand, but this doesn't deny the significance of gender dysphoria, of feeling incongruent with your internal sense of gender and your external manifestation. But it does say that gender matters. It's also easy to really uh, explain this away and go, yeah, but we're just talking about cultural expression and it's so diverse. So obviously we read this and in Scotland it'd mean a very different thing than it does you know, in England, let alone the fact that men, you know, wore these robes in Israel and, right, cultures are different. It's, it doesn't that just eradicate any significance or meaning to this? Now, side note, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul recognizes that. He recognizes that he's dealing with a specific cultural case and that it doesn't apply in the same way in all places. You can read it for yourself. But here's the thing. What's being talked about here is cultural, but it's also intentional. Okay? This is not where the lines are blurry. And, and I think it's worth recognizing, even in our culture, that if somebody, male or female, puts on lipstick, they're saying something. Okay? They're saying something specific. So here, the genders are to be maintained. Why? Why? Because in the back, it, back in Genesis, it says that God created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them. Okay. We need male and female in their clarity and in their totality to reflect God. So these things are significant. They matter. Um, like I said, when we're dealing with people with gender dysphoria, we should deal with them with tremendous compassion. But the basis here has to do with, does gender mean something or not? Is it merely body parts or is it something more significant? And the Bible maintains that it is something more significant. Now, here's the other one dealing with animals that I wanted to point out in verse 6. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother is sitting on the young or, uh, on the young or on the eggs, you'll not take the mother with the young. You'll let the mother go but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and you may live long. Now, <coughs> get the idea here. So they come across a nest, and in the nest is a mother, and either it's babies or eggs that will eventually become babies. They're allowed to take the babies or the eggs, but they have to leave the mother. Now, why can't they leave the young or the eggs? Because then they're all dead anyway. Nor can they just take them all. Okay. Now, there may be a concern here that involves compassion, but if we were to put a label on this that we understand in modern English, it's sustainability. They are not to, once again, like the scorched earth in war, they're not to exploit and to devastate and destroy. When it says all the way back in the book of Genesis that man and woman were to have dominion over the earth, the idea there is not to exploit and destroy, but actually to steward in fact, we can see this in normal practice. Take a tree, like an apple tree, and let it just grow wild. Take that same tree and give it a knowledgeable gardener. It will produce more fruit and it will thrive beyond its natural capabilities. Okay? That's why they were called to tend the garden. Not to raise it, right? Not to knock it over and put up condominiums. And clearly here, Clearly here, Deuteronomy says, using an example, a very small and specific example, 
it cares about sustainable practices. I think honestly, when we put this together and what it says about an overloaded donkey and when it says do not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, we should care about the treatment of animal as Christians. We should care how the animals in workforces and in our dietary practices are treated. Why do I say that? Because God cares. Listen to the book of Jonah. Jonah is full of surprises. This is probably one you've never noticed. But in Jonah chapter 4, when God is explaining to Jonah why he has compassion on Nineveh, he gives two specific reasons. I don't think they're the only two reasons, but he gives two. This is what he says. He says in verse 10, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, and it came into being in a night and it perished. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Most commentators believe that means children. Who don't know wrong from right yet? Should I not care about all of these innocent children? And then he says, and also much cattle? Isn't that a weird addition? Side note, that's how the book ends. That's where the credits roll, and also much cattle. God knows that if he brings about the destruction of Nineveh, he also destroys all of these animals, and that's worth noting to him. He says, here's what I'm trying to say. God has compassion on animals, and he cares how they're treated. We see that right here in Deuteronomy. Um, Okay. Here's another one, verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now, you probably get the idea there, but let's just recognize that the word parapet is not a word we use, okay? But (coughs) the reason why it's not a word we use is because we don't use our roofs in the way people in the Middle East did and still do, actually, which is as a um, bonus room. They eat up there, they relax up there, in hot weather, they sleep up there. And so the idea here is you've got this flat roof, and it's basically an unwalled deck. And it says here that you need to put a wall around it, okay? Now get the implication of this. Are we free, are we removed as Christians from finding this profitable or beneficial or even something that we need to apply to our lives because we don't have a flat roof? No, the implication, the underlying idea here is that we are responsible for the safety of those who are on our property. Once again, something that we understand in the modern world. And so if you've got a well, you better have a lid on it. And if you've got a fridge out back, you better take the door off. And if you've built a factory, we care about the safety standards of that factory for the sake of the workers. That's what this verse is about. Okay. Now, What it says here, I think, puts this into perspective that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. It's not just concern, it's responsibility. Okay. And then the last ones that kind of close off this section are incredibly confusing to us as moderns. Listen to them, verse 9. You'll not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you've sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. 
You should not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now, at first, we could try and explain this and say, well, maybe there's a logic to it. Maybe it's actually harmful to the land to overpopulate the farm. What it's talking about here is you've got a vineyard, right? We've all seen vineyards, and you sow the area in between it, okay? And so, once again, we could talk about sustainability, but the next one gets a little bit harder. This one, it says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, we can still provide a little bit of logic to that, because oxes and donkeys are very different sizes, okay? And so this kind of hodgepodge together way to farm your field is going to damage them both, okay? Either the ox is going to drag the donkey around or the, the yoke, which is this big thing, is not going to fit right. But when we get to the third one, that logic kind of fails us. Also, don't wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Keep your fabrics separate, okay? Now, side note, and this is really important to notice, the priest and the high priest... Their garments are a mixture of wool and linen. Okay? So this is not a standard cultural taboo, like not stepping on a crack or you'll break your mother's back. There's something else significant going on here. In fact, verse 12 makes this clear. You shall make (coughs) for yourself tassels on the four corners of your garment with which to cover yourself. Every other one has to do with not mixing, and then suddenly there's this addition about tassels. Now remember here that Moses is reviewing the law but it's already been stated. That's where we get the name Deuteronomy from, the second giving of the law. Okay, Deuter meaning two, and nomos meaning law. Um, <clears throat> the idea here has to do specifically with the fact that Israel is to remain distinct. And that flows into very visible, tangible, maybe even symbolic aspects, like the clothes that they wear. Now you can scratch your head about that, but don't forget the kosher laws. They're built on the same principle. You shall not eat like the inhabitants of the land, like Egypt, like the nations around you. Okay? The intention here is distinction. And the tassels are the final nail in that coffin because they are to remind all of Israel that they are God's people. Okay? But it's really here about distinction. And it may also be about order. When you read the first few chapters of Genesis and the world is created, it's all about separating the chaos into order, right? So it starts with chaos and nothingness, and then there's darkness and light, and then there's water and earth, and then there's earth animals, and they produce after their own kind, there's water animals, and they produce after their own kind, right? There's this constant separation. And so it may be that this is standing in, once again, as a symbol, a living symbol, an embodied symbol that they're constantly to be thinking about the fact that God is a God of order and the move is towards order in life and not towards chaos. Let's deal with the last section here. If we're walking through the Ten Commandments as our outline, we now enter into the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And so Moses begins tonight as we finish this chapter, and then next week as we continue uh, to deal with sexual sin. Verse 13, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find her in evidence of virginity. Okay. And so the idea here, notice, is a plot. It's that the man wants to get rid of his wife and he wants her to bear the shame and the burden of that divorce. 
And so he makes up a lie and says, I thought I married a virgin, but there's no sign of virginity. Okay, the idea here uh, is one of two possibilities. Some newer commentators suggest the idea that she's not menstruating, and so the fear is that she's already pregnant. It doesn't seem very likely. The solution that comes next doesn't actually explain that away. Most likely what it's talking about here um, is the breaking of the hymen, right? This, this aspect, sometimes it's called the maidenhood, right? Uh, this aspect of virginity that's actually visibly um, observable in, in a woman having sex for the first time. Now, we've got gymnasts and and very physically active women, a lot of times that doesn't even manifest um, today. But still, the idea here is this woman has fornicated. And so that gives me reason both to get her put to death, remember that's the consequence, uh, and I I get out of the marriage. Um, So notice what it says here, verse 15, the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders in the city gate. Most likely, this is their sheets from their wedding bed, okay? Most likely. And and remember here, we tend to go to a hotel elsewhere to consummate the marriage, not in Israel, okay? They built a tent in the middle of the party. They had the party around it. The couple actually went in to consummate the marriage and then they came back out again. Okay, not the same night, the next morning. Weddings are days long in Israel. Okay, but this is a very public and visible event. Um, if that sounds weird to you, there are still small portions of Greece where this still takes place, where they where the parents take this garment from the wedding night and home because the tradition still lives in the Mediterranean. Um, so here's the point, though. This guy has made this all up, and now evidence to the contrary is presented. Okay, To the elders in the city of gate, verse 16, The father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. Behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity, and yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of the city shall take the man and whip him, and they shall fine him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he's brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. Okay, remember the woman before the wedding would have been living at home, therefore under her father's responsibility, and so an impugning of her is an impugning of the household. Okay, that they tried to, oh man, I almost used that phrase. The phrase I read in a commentary was pawn off bad goods which is nonsense because the Old Testament does not see women as chattel. But the idea here is that they tried to pull one over, okay? Um, And hide, like David does, a sin by just covering it up very quickly, okay? Um, And so, so that's why there's this price paid to the father. Verse 21, they'll bring out the young woman to the door of her father. Oh, nope, we don't want to skip there. It'll be confusing. Um, Verse, yeah, halfway through 19. And she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all his days. Okay. And so this, this sort of underhanded conniving removes his integrity to divorce his wife at all. Now, that probably doesn't sound like a husband you'd want to live with. Okay. But there's other things you've got to keep in mind here. Okay. This guy has just been publicly humiliated 
we're just reading the legislation, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be counsel or a community commitment to this relationship. Okay? The second thing I want to point out is the significant um, difficulty that divorce brought upon women in the ancient world. Okay? And so this is not just about love, it's about livelihood. It's about security. It's about protection. And one of the things marriage means, and it should mean more than this, but one of the things it means is I will take care of you. And what he wants out of is, is that, right? I don't want to take care of you anymore, so I'm just going to remove you. And so that's taken care of. It can be hard for us to understand, but I just always feel the need to point out when we talk about these things that the majority of history's marriages worldwide have been arranged. And so we should use that as a filter of some of the ways we think about marriage and love and what's possible, and that the only good marriage is one that has full freedom and choice and is finding the one and all of these things. When you do that, you're denying the possibility of good marriages to the majority of human beings throughout history. I just, I just think we've got to be careful there. Okay. However... Verse 20, if the thing is true that the evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, they will bring her out to the young, young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she's done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And so adultery is still a very significant and serious thing. Fornication is a significant thing. But notice the order of the trial. It's first the man who's on trial before it's ever the woman. Okay. There's a protection of the weaker one in the relationship. Verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the uh, evil from Israel. That's just adultery outright. Verse 23. If there's a betrothed virgin, once again, read engaged, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you will bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. The important part of this passage is the middle when it says the young woman, because she did not cry out. That's not what she's guilty of. It just proves that she was complicit. Okay? And once again, the world we live in we have soundproof walls. We have a lot of distance between houses and the suburbs. We can't just directly apply this. But if you're in Israel, you live with your extended family. Okay? If you cry out for help, the next room is where your brother is, where your father is. The concern here is that she would try and remove her responsibility by calling rape. However, I am struck by the fact that the Bible also does what comes next. Verse 25, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. What's the difference between these? If she's in the city, if she's in the country, if she's where people are, if she's in a place where people are. And notice it doesn't say there shall be an inquiry or an investigation. If there are no witnesses and there couldn't have been any witnesses, they take the woman at her word. There's no, why were you there at that time of night? Why do you dress that way? You know, maybe your signals were coming on. Once again, 
Deuteronomy stands with the weak, with the victim. It takes this person at their word. Verse 26, you'll do nothing to the woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And though (coughs) the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. Now notice this last one, verse 28. (coughs) If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, okay? So the last two, engaged in the city, engaged outside the city. If a woman is what we would call single, man meets a woman who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they're found then the man who lays with her shall give her to the father of the young or shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and shall be his wife because he's violated her he may not divorce her all his days now this sounds at first read like the woman is forced to marry her rapist and that the only reason she's not in the other cases is because she's already attached to someone else my mind is blown tonight by the unclarity of the ESV here. And the NIV isn't any better. Okay, the word there when it says a man finds a virgin who's not betrothed and seizes her is not the same word in 25 when it's clearly talking about rape. The one in 25 is usually translated with words like strength or hardened. I'll give you kind of a funny example. Later in Deuteronomy, it talks about if two men are fighting and a woman seizes the testicles of the man her husband is fighting, that's the same word here. It's not fondle. It's forceful, okay? The word there can be and should be translated rape, take her by force. But the one we read here when it talks about a virgin seizes her, it's a much softer word. It's used in numbers to talk about a normal adultery relationship, one where there's no rape involved, where it's both consensual. Okay, this word, a husband can do with his wife and do nothing wrong. It just means that he embraces her, takes her. Most of the time that this word is used, it just means to bring closer to yourself. This is not a woman has to marry her rapist. This is if a man seduces a woman, He needs to marry her. Now, to be clear, this is mentioned in another place in the Old Testament, and it gives one exception, which is if the family disagrees. Okay? So there are exceptions to this. It's not necessarily something that we should just go, well, if we catch anyone in the youth group sleeping around, we're just going to have a wedding. Not necessarily. But once again, recognize what this man is taking. Not just her virginity, but her future. Because she's now unmarriable. This is about the dignity of women, the protection of women. Okay? I know when we talk about dignity in the modern day, especially in terms of gender inequality, we're talking about freedoms. But that doesn't deny the reality of this dignity. That she can't just be taken advantage of. That you can't just toss her away. He's held accountable for his actions. Okay. And then it adds there, he may not divorce her all his days. And then notice the last one in verse 30, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Now to be clear there, when it says his father's wife, it's not talking about his own mother. The Bible does talk about incest, but not here. The idea of father's wife is stepmother. Okay. 
but it's maintained here. This is the, the um, problem that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says, it's unbelievable to, um, unbelievable to me that you have a man who has his own father's wife and you applaud it as being some expression of great freedom or grace or these types of things. He says, not even non-Christians would tolerate behavior like this. Okay. The, what's being talked about in that last verse is having an affair with your stepmom. Okay. Um, but one of the things we see in that that I just want to touch on and does help explain some of the logic of the Old Testament laws is that the family must be protected. That those borders matter. It's not just the marriage, but we've seen with the children, the Bible puts a significant weight on, on the importance of the family and protecting that. That's why when it does talk about adultery, it talks about not just what you've done to this person, but how you've hurt your neighbor. Okay, There's a community aspect, and that's filtered through the web that we call family relations. And so, <coughs> so here's the point. Here's where I think we should finish. One of the reasons that these passages, when it, we deal with sexual sin in the Old Testament, can be so hair-raising is not, not because our view of sexuality is higher and the Bible's view is lower. You cannot read the Old Testament or the New. You cannot read the passages on sexuality and say the Bible th- sees something as sec- uh, like sex to be uh, as being <coughs> a necessary evil that needs to be limited and constrained and not expressed. No, it says this is so important. This is so valuable. It's so powerful that it can only be handled in certain ways. The real reason why we as a culture are so sexually loose is because we don't think sex is significant. The Bible says, actually, actually it's tremendously important. It was designed with a particular intention and it has an amazing value. And so it heavily legislates it and heavily sets boundaries about it, uh, around it because of that feature. Not, not because it thinks it's so so gross. <coughs> Let's pray. God, we sooner or later have to make the decision. Is the Bible, the whole Bible, the word of God, and therefore profitable to us and having application on our life? Or are we going to make ourselves the authority over Scripture pick it apart and piecemeal it to what we're comfortable with. We do not interpret these things we read to Israel directly, one-to-one, into our life. But they were written for our instruction. And so I (coughs) I pray, Lord, that you would give us a greater appreciation for the parts of the Bible we don't understand a greater patience to think through things and not just take uh, things at a glance, to work through the differences in culture and in history, to pay attention to the language, to ask what's actually being done in the passage here. And as we do so, Lord, I pray that you would prove your scriptures are profitable. If we've learned anything tonight, even if there's places 
um, that we still have concerns uh, or don't know what to do with, there are still things that we, as individuals, as a culture, as a nation, can learn from Deuteronomy. Still lessons that we neglect to our own harm as a nation. So I pray, God, that you would help us to... um, to be willing to take your word in faith to hear it afresh and to seek to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good night.